Rypatch Gold Corp. is an exploration company seeking to build a sizable inventory of gold and silver resource assets in mining-friendly Nevada, the world's fourth richest gold region. This well-funded company now has 1.2 million ounces of gold and gold equivalent in the measured and indicated category, plus 2.7 million ounces of gold and gold equivalent in the inferred category, with ongoing drilling to achieve a goal of 10 million ounces of gold. For more info on RPM, please visit our website at W www.rypatchgold.com American Manganese Incorporated controls the largest deposit of manganese in the southwest United States and their 43101 preliminary economic evaluation includes the potential to be the lowest cost producer of electrolytic manganese in the world a National Instrument 43101 report of 14.9 billion pounds of indicated and 3.5 billion pounds inferred go to www.americanmanganeseinc.com Africa is known for its world-class gold deposits. Both Namibia and Tanzania are mining-friendly countries, and Helio has been exploring for gold here for the last six years. Backed by an experienced board and committed institutional shareholders, Helio is drilling its SMP Gold Project in Tanzania to demonstrate the potential for a multi-million ounce resource. Helio is also in the process of outlining the resource potential at its DGP project in Namibia, which is situated next to Anglo Gold Ashanti's Nabatschap Gold Mine. For updates, check out Metal Bay Gold is a gold exploration, pre-production, and development company focused on developing its flagship project, the Atlanta Gold Mine in Nevada. Meadow Bay Gold has recently announced a significant gold porphyry discovery at the Atlanta Mine and is currently conducting a significant drill program. Meadow Bay Gold trades under the symbol MAYGF on the OTCQX or MAY on the TSX Venture Exchange. To learn more about Meadow Bay Gold, go to www.meadowbaygold.com. Gold in Nevada, the right stuff in the right place. All financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its hosts are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. I'll be sliding down, I'll be gliding down, try not to try too hard, it's just a lovely ride. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome back to the second hour of Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor. And again, we have Adrian Day uh, with us. Uh, Before we uh, talk to Adrian, I have to uh, thank our sponsors for the second hour of today's show. They are American Bonanza, Lucky Strike Resources, Helio Resources, Marathon Gold, Meadow Bay Gold, Metanor Resources, Merrick's Gold, Inc., uh, Brazil Resources, American Bonanza, and Paramount Gold and Silver. Well, Adrian, uh, when we left uh, last segment, we were, uh, we were we were talking about the dollar, uh, about the euro, where things are going to go, inflation, deflation, uh, and uh, you know, depending on which way you see things going, 
the inflation or deflation issue is a very important one because if we're you know if we're going to be inflating if, if we're going to see prices rise let's put it that way we know we are inflating now using the austrian definition as you pointed out money supply has grown very dramatically although i would point out that we haven't seen uh the uh, let's say the velocity of money change very dramatically there's not this sort of psychology yet out there in the market that you got to buy today because things are going to be a lot more expensive tomorrow once that sets in i think we could start to see accelerating prices and even hyperinflation would you agree with that yeah i mean i i wouldn't i don't think hyperinflation is a risk in the near term to be honest mm-hmm. uh-huh. um so so i i but but certainly accelerating inflation at the moment, yeah, yeah. I hope you're right about that because hyperinflation is not good for anybody. Uh, I don't think inflation is good for anybody, really. I think it would be better if we had stable prices. But but let's say that we're in a an accelerating inflation rate, and you pointed out last segment that we have seen, you know, as you said, you don't, you're not so concerned about the absolute numbers that come from the government, uh, but rather the trend, and you pointed out, a very significant trend in the in price rises in the CPI in the last number of months. So let's say uh, we're, we have a galloping inflationary problem here. Uh, where is the best place to to focus your investing efforts? In your- well, in that sort of scenario, it would be both resources generally, not just gold, but resources uh-huh. generally, and emerging market stocks. Emerging markets tend to do very well in an inflationary environment as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So those would be the two areas to go into. But let me just I, let me just say one thing that, that I think is very important before we before we move on. Sure. For me, inflation or inflation expectations are by no means the main reason that I'm focusing on gold and silver and the other resource of the other resources. Okay. And I would also point out that, um, you know, and I'm sure we've talked about this before, but for gold in particular, not the other resources, but for gold, inflation is not, in my view, uh, inflation is by no means uh, the scenario in which gold performs best relative to other assets. We we think of gold as an inflation hedge largely because our – experience of gold in the 70s was during an inflationary period Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and of course when you have a high inflation asset prices go up in nominal terms so we see gold gold going from 35 to 850 and we say wow gold's an inflation hedge if you look back in history you find that gold has actually performed better relative to other assets during deflationary periods it's and 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 the the pioneering work on this was uh, Roy Jastrom, who's deceased mm-hmm. now, but uh, he wrote a book called The Golden Constant, mm-hmm. which took prices in England all the way back to the middle of the 14th century, mm-hmm. and detailed year by year prices from the middle of the 16th century. And mm-hmm. and you can see that in deflationary periods, gold does better. Mm-hmm. It's just that if gold goes from let's just say a thousand to eleven hundred. That's not as dramatic as a thousand to two thousand, mm-hmm. but if inflation is much stronger if from the from a thousand to two thousand, you may find that in absolute terms gold did better in the in, with the lower return. Mm-hmm. And that's the point well, he makes. Anyway, I just wanted to point that out. Well, I think that's very well uh, well said, Adrian. And 
actually, uh, whether you think we're in an inflation or a deflationary period of time now, we do see credit deleveraging. And the work of Bob Hoy, uh, a, uh, an analyst out of Vancouver, uh, shows that, in fact, uh, well, Bob believes that this is the sixth greatest credit contraction that we've seen in 300 years among the senior currency. And, um, and Bob's work has shown that when you have this credit deleveraging uh, going on, that the real price of gold rises very dramatically. And I, so I sort of sort of watched that. And he, Bob has his own proprietary measure of uh, that he uses, a, a, a mix of commodities that he uses to measure gold against. But I just simply look at it against the Rogers Raw Materials Fund, and my listeners hear this almost every week because I think it's so important. The uh, Before Lehman Brothers, an ounce of gold would have purchased only 17% of the Rogers Raw Materials Fund. Uh, by March of 2009, it would have purchased 44% of the Rogers Raw Materials Fund. Then it came back to around 30% when the risk trade was back on and people were feeling good about all the stimulus that was pumped into the economy. But then with the Greek crisis two years ago when it reared its ugly head, it went back to 44%. More recently, it was as high as 47 Right now, in fact, yesterday it was 47%. So an ounce of gold has purchasing power against energy, base metals, food items, and clothing items in the Rogers Raw Materials Fund has grown dramatically. And at the same time, we see the uh, profits from the major gold mining companies surging. You and I were talking about this at the break surging. So I I think what you're saying and now I don't I'm not saying that we're having deflation because clearly the CPI continues to rise, the money the money supply continues to rise, but we are seeing I believe unmistakably and, and correct me if you think you're if you don't agree with this, but I see a deleveraging process going on globally. Do you agree with that? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, no question. And I mean, so some, yeah. Yeah, and so what we've seen with this deleveraging, and it's consistent with what Hoy's work has shown in the 1930s, we did have deflation, we also had deleveraging, and we saw the real price of gold or the profits of gold mining companies surging because the cost of production fell relative to the price of the product. And I think this is one of the reasons that I am so bullish on gold mining shares, and I, I want to get your thoughts on, on gold mining shares as well. So let me just ask you right now. Um, what are what are your thoughts about gold mining? Do you are you really bullish on the sector in general? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. And you know, I think we have to stand back a little bit. One of the questions people often ask is, of course, gold's gone up a lot. Why haven't the gold shares participated? Yes. And uh, you know, this is not a new phenomenon. This is this has really been the case for the last five years, really, that the gold mm -hmm. shares have have lagged. So we have to look at what the reasons are, and there are several reasons. You just touched on one of them, and one of the most important ones, which was the cost of mining. Mm -hmm. Now, an astonishing thing is that from below in 2000, when gold was at 250, all the way to the second half of 2008, when gold had tripled, more than tripled, uh, the gold mining, the producing, the producing gold miners were still losing money. Mm-hmm. Astonishing, and yeah. the reason for that is really quite simple. Uh, as gold was going up, so too was the price of oil. So too were other input costs. You know. Yes, I, I. Yeah. I, I remember it clearly, Adrian, when gold had actually touched a thousand bucks or so. Barrick and other major producers were crying because they were losing money, Absolutely. and you, you couldn't get they, they, the the industry couldn't keep up with producing these big tires for for large earth moving equipment and other materials were not available or if they were at exorbitant prices 
So this goes to show you, I mean, my fear is in an inflationary period, not only gold mining, but lots of businesses are going to have a hard time making money. And really, that's, of course, what gold mining is all about. It's about, like any other business, making money. No, that's right. Well, that's one of the big factors. But as you, you've mentioned a couple of times now, but what happened recently is that those margins for gold mining producers have really started to expand and get very, very attractive. Mm-hmm. So that's number one. So that's changed. But number two reason, I think, um, is that gold mining companies, let's face it, have been pretty poor stewards of, of shareholder wealth. Yeah. They've, they've issued far too many shares. They've been extremely dilutive. And, um, you know, certainly up until recently, gold, the gold mining industry over the last 50 years have been a destroyer, not a creator of capital, mm-hmm. second only to the airline industry. <laughs> yeah. Now, that's beginning to change as well. And, you know, you're beginning to get companies, Newmont, of course, being at the front of it now, talking about paying dividends. Mm-hmm. Um, I think you're, I think the senior mining companies have finally got the message, be, because because that they have to produce returns for shareholders because of the competition, largely because of the competition from the ETFs. Frankly, you know, we we saw a lot of investors say, well, why am I bothering with these gold companies that don't even make any money and keep issuing new shares? I'll just buy gold. Yeah. So in order to make themselves attractive relative to the ETFs the most obvious thing to do is to pay a dividend. Um, And so Newmont's at the front of this, but other companies are picking this up as well. Silver Wheaton, um, you know, and other companies. Franco Nevada has always paid a small dividend, but it's increasing the dividend and so on. That's going to be a trend. So so that's changing a bit. But I think the other third and most important reason that gold shares have lagged most recently is when you think, why are people buying gold? There's several reasons people buy gold. But most recently, people have been buying gold as a defensive insurance mechanism. They're buying gold because they're worried about fiat money. They're Mm -hmm. not buying gold necessarily to make money, Mm -hmm. certainly not to speculate. And so when you're in a defensive mode, you would tend to buy gold, the metal, rather than, you know, gold mining shares. Now, what's changed there? I don't think the sentiment has changed, but I think what has changed is that the gold shares have simply become cheap enough, undervalued enough relative to gold. I mean, it's astonishing. We've had a bit of a rally in the last couple of weeks. But at the end of September, the uh, producing gold mining shares were at 20-year lows in terms of valuation. Mm. That's pretty astonishing when yeah. you think of what's happened to gold. Well. So, and even now, I mean, even now today, after the rally, I think the gold mining shares are still undervalued relative to gold. Yeah. Well, I know that I look at uh, seven major mining companies, and we've seen a dramatic growth in earnings from uh, from 2008, where collectively they were making about $5.80, I think, and now they're up to the consensus analysts are having them go to nearly $30 collectively by uh, 2012. And with three-fourths of this year over there at $22 or something like that. So the growth of earnings has been phenomenal, and the share prices have not kept up, which means there is value. And I would say certainly if they start paying dividends, that's going to create you know, generate some attention, especially in this low div- in this low interest rate environment where people need income. Um, Adrian, you know, 
I think you can't escape a discussion of gold or any uh, commodities as far as that goes without talking about China. So I'd like to get your macroeconomic view on, on China and the developing world as a whole. We have had uh, Hong Kong-based economist Jim Walker on our show, and he's a, a real Austrian economist. that He thinks that despite China's long-term growth prospects, that they're getting themselves into some they're, – they're, they're really setting themselves up for some big problems. For example, he points out there are 64 million vacant apartments in China uh, that he believes uh, has resulted to a great extent from their – command economy, their system of government deciding what should be built in order to keep GDP growing. Uh, and they have a 5.5% inflation rate, and that's still 150 basis points higher than the Bank of China uh, has set as its goal. Well, what is your short-term and longer-term macro view of, of China? No, you, you've raised some very good points. I mean, basically, I am I am very, very bullish on the long-term continuation of economic growth in China um, for, for, for a lot of reasons. But, I mean, I, I think the industrialization and the urbanization is, is going to continue, and, and that leads to continued economic growth. But having said that, um, having said that, there are some problems, and the biggest problem is the one you've mentioned. Uh, that is, you know, the overbuilding and the empty, the empty apartments. You know, I mean, if you go to Shanghai and you get on a train, the trains are full. You go to the restaurants, the restaurants are full. Where the where the speculation has happened, where the excesses have happened, is primarily, primarily, not exclusively, but primarily limited to to the housing, um, to the property um, sector. And of course, you often see that when there's excess credit created, that mm -hmm. credit tends to flow to one place. Mm -hmm. We saw this, um, you know, we saw this, uh, Mark Farber's done some very good work on that. He makes a point mm -hmm. repeatedly. But, you know, uh, prior to 2008, you had excess credit created in the United States, and it all went in, not all, most of it went into housing. Mm -hmm. We didn't have a technology boom. We didn't have a restaurant building boom. You know, but it went into housing. And that's what often happens when you have excess credit. Mm -hmm. It sort of finds its way to one sector and then builds on itself mm -hmm. as everybody starts to say, well, you know, we all know housing prices never go down, so I'll buy some of these ridiculous mm -hmm. prices. Mm -hmm. um, or we all know that uh, the Internet has changed the world, so I'll buy some Internet stocks at these ludicrous prices. Right. Um, and, and it just builds on itself. So getting back to China, it strikes me that the economic growth is real, but you do have a fundamental problem. Now, I'll point out that in the industrialization of, of the United States from 1875 to 1914, we have bubbles and depressions. In the Industrial Revolution in, in Britain, uh, in the period you know from before the Napoleonic War all the way up to 1840, you had bubbles and recessions and depressions along the way. That doesn't alter the long-term economic growth outlook, in my view. But at some point, it wouldn't, it wouldn't surprise me at some point if China had a, had a serious economic problem. I don't see that coming soon. I really don't. I mean, where we are at the moment is, uh, you know, the, the economy is slowing down, but it's slowing from 11 12% growth to 8 9% growth. Mm -hmm. You know, 8 9% growth, we would all be delighted with. Inflation, as you mentioned, of 5.5% is high. I believe you said 5.5%, yeah, right? Yes. Mm -hmm. It's high, but it's not runaway hyperinflation. So for the near term, it strikes me that things are, 
you know, I'll say under control. I hate to use the expression under control, mm-hmm. but, but it strikes me that things are under control well, that's, uh, that's, for, for the near term. That's really good to hear because when we look at what's going on in, in Europe and, and in the United States, although I'd like to get your views on the U.S. economy, when we look at this relative weakness in the developed world, um, you know, it would really be, I think, tragic if China imploded now at the same time. Well, on the other hand, though, do you see the weakness in the U.S. and in Europe as slowing China down? Is that To what extent, I guess, the question is, is China converting to a demand, you know, a demand from inside their borders as opposed to export-driven uh, economy? No, absolutely. What's astonishing is that the what's I mean, what's astonishing is that is that uh, exports to the United States only account for about four percent of of, US, of the Chinese GDP. Hmm. It's it's a really quite small amount. Exports generally are higher than that, of course, but ex- exports to the U.S. Um, and so, I th- I think the slowdown in Europe and 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 the U.S. has been. A contributing factor, certainly a major contributing factor to the slowdown in manufacturing in China that we've seen, um, and and therefore to the slowdown of imports of resources that we saw early in the year. What's interesting to me is the manufacturing, you know, as you know, has gone down. But in the last couple of months in China, I'm talking now. But in but but in the last couple of months, the purchasing manager survey that they have in China has gone up for two months running, which indicates that we may be at the bottom. You know, the manufacturing output has gone down, but now managers are looking are looking forward. The purchasing managers are looking forward to an uptick, and we're also seeing an uptick in the import of certain resources into China. So that would suggest to me that the inventories have run down sufficiently. You know, we go through a cycle with, with, with commodities where prices go up, inventories build, uh, and then, of course, they build sufficiently, but uh, the economy starts to slow a little bit, and then people start uh, consuming their inventories, and the inventories get run down, which 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 um, aggravates the decline in, in new purchasing. But now it strikes me that those inventories are probably run down sufficiently, and we're seeing imports of, of commodities, uh, you know, building up again into China. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm reasonably optimistic on the near term. I really am. So does that translate then into optimism for, say, base metals and energy? Oh, products? absolutely, 100%, yeah. Now, I'll have to say that my, my sort of approach on commodities is a long-term view. I mean, I am a mm-hmm. very, very... I am extremely bullish on the long-term view, and, and I think we all know the commodities are for both uh, demand and supply reasons. Uh, but we all know the commodities are extremely volatile. And if you if you believe in the long term, if you accept the long-term bullish view, then you simply need to use this volatility to buy when things are cheap. Hold on. But I I, I think people make a big mistake when they when they um, you know when they sell too early and get out. This is a long-term view. And let me just you know if you look at commodities generally, cycles for commodities tend to be very very long. So mm-hmm. the shortest copper cycle in, in the last 250 years, for example, has been 17 years. That's the shortest. Mm-hmm. Now the copper cycle this time started in 2001. So if it if it's ended, if that's the if this, this is all we're getting, this would be the shortest by far 
because previous shortage is 17 years. Mm -hmm. But if you also look back, you find that the longest and most sustained um, uh, commodity rises are when you have a brand new source of demand. Not when there's an interruption in supply or anything else, but a brand new source of demand. And if you look back at Britain, for example, in the English Industrial Revolution from the end of the Napoleonic War, 1815 to 1840, that's a period of of 25 years when you had commodity, commodity prices in a long, sustained upturn. Now, in 1819, they collapsed. Mm-hmm. But but in 1840, you didn't care the debt collapse in 1819. Are you with me? It was only painful when you lived through it. Sure. Now, if you look at eight, uh, uh, 1875 to 1914, first German industrialization, then followed by U.S. Uh, industrialization and urbanization, another huge sustained um, broad uptick in, in commodity prices. And again, there were periods there where we had the Depression and mm-hmm. all sorts of stuff. Mm-hmm. But but if you just held on for the whole period, you did very well. And now now with China and starting in, you know, a few years ago, five, six years ago, uh, we're starting to see that third big uptick with a new source of demand. And given that China represents 20% of the world's economy uh, in terms of population, sorry, in terms of population, it seems to me that this this boom in resources could be not only as long as that for Germany and the U.S. and for Britain, but actually exceed it in terms of of, of length. And behind China, you've got India coming. So I, I think we're in for a very long extended bull market in commodities. Oh. And that's not to say that they won't be volatile along the way. So then how are you playing it? What are some of your favorite uh ways to play this long-term bull market are you in base metal stocks are you in energy stocks what how are you doing it yeah yeah i mean i think the things that the things that are more in favor you know change from time to time based on supply and demand uh, fundamentals you know at the earlier stages of industrialization which is where china still is at the earlier stages um energy is obviously critical uh so too is copper copper is critical um, I, right now, you know, uh, platinum and palladium are critical because of the automobile industry. Uh, so those of the sectors and agriculture, sorry, is critical. But but copper is interesting because just to look at copper for a second. I mean, I say copper is is more in demand in the earlier stages of industrialization. Um, and you look at Korea, you look at Taiwan, you look at Japan. You know, the per capita consumption patterns are all very, very similar, you know, from, from, from one or two kilograms per person, and then as the industrialization gets going, it shoots up all the way to 11, 12, 13 kilograms per person. But as an economy matures, as an economy matures, copper consumption actually declines. Mm-hmm. And so in the U.S. and Britain and, and Japan right now, it's about eight kilograms per person. So... It's, and, and, and that just illustrates what I'm saying. It's used more in the earlier stages as you build, right? You build bridges, you build roads, you build infrastructure. But once you've built it, you don't need to keep replacing it mm-hmm. to, sure. uh, you know, at the same level. China right now consumes just under four kilograms per person. Mm. So it's got a long way to go um, uh, to catch up. And even if it doesn't, you know, do what Korea and Taiwan and Japan did, even if, even if it only goes halfway to where those countries are, that's still a huge increase in, in demand for, for copper. 
Sure. Well, let's let's talk about the the equity markets in general, Adrian. Um, we've sort of been treading water. We're, we're we're quite a bit below the highs that were that we were at in the U.S. equity markets before the Lehman Brothers uh, decline, um, bankruptcy. Uh, what, what is your outlook? Are, are stocks moderately priced, uh, overpriced, or under undervalued right now in general in, in the U.S.? Well, in general, I think the I think the they tend to be a little. I think they're fairly priced right now. Mm-hmm. You know, in terms in terms of earnings, they're underpriced, but in terms of dividends, uh, yields, and they're they're overpriced. But but they're certainly relatively good value. No question about that. Yeah. But the U.S. stocks are not as undervalued as either European stocks or emerging market stocks. Mm-hmm. So. When I'm looking at buying stocks, although I'm, I see some value in the U.S., I am certainly buying more in Europe and the emerging markets because they're even even better better values. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think we should just, if we may, just quickly, you know, anytime you look at any kind of sector for investment, any kind of market or, or sector, there's always positive factors and negative factors, right? And, and I mean, our job is to look at all of the factors, to try to weigh them, and to see whether, you know, on balance, you're more bullish. Or, or, or bearish. There's never one overwhelming factor. And when you look at when you look at equities, both in Europe and the U- U.S. for that matter, you know the obvious negative is the economic outlook and the financial outlook, right? Um, but but that's the obvious negative. But but that's already priced into stocks, in my view. And on the positive side, you've got the fact that valuations are pretty good, particularly in Europe. You've got the fact that there's an awful lot of money on the sidelines. Uh, you look at the U.S., for example, where Retail investors have continued ever since September of 2008. Mm-hmm. Month after month, they have continued to be sellers of equities. Mm-hmm. So they are very, very underweight equities. And from a contrarian point of view, of course, that's a positive. You've got insider buying of stocks. That's a positive. Uh, and, and the biggest positive of all, frankly, is just valuations. And as I mentioned, valuations are really better outside of Europe, outside of um, the U.S. Mm-hmm. Well, let's talk about valuations of, of uh, my favorite metal, and that's gold. Gold is trading uh, right around a little under $1,800 as we speak. What about gold? Is it What's your outlook for gold? No, I'm okay, I'm very positive on gold, and again, it comes back to why are people buying gold. They're not buying it as an investment, let alone a speculation. They're buying it because they don't trust fiat currencies. I don't think anything's changed in that regard, and I don't see anything changing in that regard anytime soon. Um, and so, no, I'm very bullish on gold. I would continue to be a buyer of gold and and the gold equities. What about silver? Yeah, I like silver, but I'm no, I like silver. Don't get me wrong, but silver, as we know, tends to be a little bit more volatile. It can shoot up more, and it also tends to tends to respond more to inflation than deflation. So I'm a little bit more of a a little bit more of a trader and a little bit more price sensitive with silver, but I am with gold. So I, w- I would wait for a bit of a pullback on silver, to be honest. Okay, what, uh, while we're on the topic of gold and, and perhaps silver as well, but gold, uh, and we talked earlier about the rising profits of gold mining shares, do you have some favorite gold mining stocks you might want to share with our listeners? No, absolutely. I mean, Franklin, Nevada, which now trades New York, FNV on New York, is is I think you know one of the lowest risk of all of the all of the gold mining companies. Now it's not a mining company, of course; it's a royalty company. Sure. Uh, and that's why the risk is is lower. 
But, you know, if you look at Franco Nevada, um, people often say royalty companies don't have the leverage of the producers. Well, maybe they don't have quite the leverage, but a company like Franco Nevada or Royal Gold, as a royalty company, they do participate in expansions, increased production, new discoveries that people make on their royalty property. So sure. they are participating in that expansion. So I like Franco Nevada a lot, and even at today's price of gold, with no additional increase in gold or no additional um, acquisition, their earnings should double over the next three years. So I, I like that one a lot. Uh, Freeport, copper and gold, of course, but primarily copper, under $40, I think is a very, very good long-term buy, super strong balance sheet. Um, they have a history of returning cash to shareholders. Um, you know, if you look at the paper, it'll tell you it's a 2.5% dividend yield, but that excludes all of the special cash that they, that they, that they pay. They pay $0.50, cents, um, uh, you know, in, in June as a special cash. They paid $0.50 cents at the beginning of the year as a special cash dividend. So if you add in all the special cash dividends that seem to be a regular feature, you're, you're getting a 5% dividend, dividend mm-hmm. yield. So I like that one a lot. Um, you know, there's a lot we like. They've run up a little bit. That's a problem. So yeah. there's a difference between what we're buying today and what we like. Um, right. You know, Agnigo right. Eagle looks good to me. Uh, Agnigo uh-huh. Eagle, of course, had that problem with that uh, Canadian mine up there. Right. And uh-huh. the market just slammed them, went from over $60 yeah. to $43. Yeah. You know, I think it's a good buy. But that's just one of several projects they have, too. So Absolutely. Uh, it's relatively yeah. small for the company. It's a good yeah. company, well run. Yes. Yes, it is. Well, um, so so it's gold and silver for sure. Uh, energy, any any picks in the energy sector? Yeah, um, I think my favorite would be Canadian oil sands, COS in Toronto. You know, that's trading at about twenty-one dollars. The good thing about COS being in the oil sands business, they've got tremendous leverage to higher to higher um, oil prices. Yet they also pay a dividend, 5.5%, a little over 5.5%, in fact. Mm-hmm. So they've got a good balance sheet, leveraged oil, and they pay a dividend. I, I, I like that one a lot. I also like some of the big independent uh, companies, the independent EMP companies. Uh, Devon is perhaps my favorite at the moment. Um, but I like those companies better than the big integrated, you know, the multinational integrated companies. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, because the integrated companies have, Big problem replacing reserves, um, whereas the companies like Devon that are making the discoveries and other, you know, quick, quick movers into these new, new areas. So, are the Devons of this world then potential takeover targets by the big guys? I think so. Yeah, definitely. Oh, definitely potential. And you've seen some of that already. Mm-hmm. Um, you haven't seen quite as much of it as I thought we might, given the problems that the big companies have replacing reserves. Um, but you've certainly seen some of it, no no question. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think you're going to see more of that. Any thoughts, uh, Adrian? Uh, I'm hearing a lot about the um, the shale gas that's being discovered in the U.S. Uh, uh, in the Northeast, there's a huge, uh, I think it's called the Marcel uh, Formation, that is uh, producing. I've heard it said uh, potentially that the U.S. could be the Saudi Arabia of natural gas. Uh, there's apparently some... Big discoveries out of North Dakota, oil discoveries. Uh, I heard a Citicorp, uh, a city, a Citicorp um, uh, mining analyst or an analyst talking about the energy sector in the U.S. very on very bullish terms. And I'm hearing that there is a steel mill that was started up in my 
hometown of Canton, Ohio, uh, that has been uh, that has been constructed just simply to produce uh, casings, steel casings, and, and pipes for the uh, for the shale industry. It seems to me that this could be a bright spot in the U.S. economy going forward. Any thoughts on that? No, I think you're right. Um, you know, and that's been a uh, that's been a complete revolution. Now, what what you know, in terms of the energy situation in the United States, um, what what needs to happen, of course, is that we need to first of all we need to make sure there have been some skeptics. The skeptics um, are primarily over the concern or the question of just how long the tails are on on some of these deposits. You know, when you when you find a new oil deposit. You, you you can either have a rapid or or a or a less rapid or or a less rapid uh, decline rate, sure. and then after the decline rate, you then have a question of the tail and how long is the tail. And with a lot of the shale deposits, I think I think I'm not a technician, but I think it is true to say that we don't really know how long the tail is going to be on some of these. Right now, suddenly the earliest ones like the Barnett, where Devon actually was was one of the first movers when they bought. Murphy Oil, which um, mm-hmm. uh, was was first into the Barnett Shale, but mm-hmm. the decline rates have been relatively quick. Mm-hmm. But we don't really know how long the tails are going to be. So yeah. I mean, I think that's one question. But once 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 we become more and more comfortable with the extent of these of these oil deposits, and everything is pointing towards the optimistic um, outlook. Then it seems to me that you're going to start getting more people using gas instead of oil. But these things take time. You know, you convert your bus fleets and trucking fleets to gas rather than um, oil. But it takes it takes time, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but awesome. slowly, slowly it'll happen. And I, I think that could be the biggest bright spot uh, on the U.S. economy. At the, yeah, the- certainly if we don't have to uh, to rely on, on foreign sources, and especially in difficult politically uh, difficult parts of the world it would be it would seem to be a, a positive for the US well absolutely uh, we, but let me just say on that yeah. we're not exactly uh-huh. helping ourselves you know we've got a next door neighbor who Canada who is i mean about as friendly as you can possibly be towards the United States and yet we don't want to take their um oil sands uh oil yeah, you know, because it's dirty and because it kills rabbits or whatever it does. Yeah, I think so, there was a, a pipeline uh, construction proposal that is running into some trouble here in the U.S. that would take the oil sands uh, products, uh, gas, uh, oil down to, uh, I guess, down to Texas. Well, that's right. And Obama's just—you uh, probably saw that the other day. Obama's decided to set up a commission to study it, and conveniently, it won't report until after the election. Um, But, you know, in the meantime, Alberta is looking at building a pipeline to the east, to to the west coast. To the west coast. shipping the the oil over to China. So, you know, I mean, if we don't want it, someone else will. Yeah, you would think so. Uh, Well, that's certainly true. Uh, Adrian, we unfortunately are out of time once again. Always so much to talk to you about. Uh, We are uh, in a political season, and speaking of politics, I heard Bob Pisani on CNBC say yesterday that none, none other than Ben Bernanke was uh, greeting and shaking hands with the troops that were coming back from Afghanistan. I'm wondering if Mr. Bernanke is thinking of running for president as he looks at the uh, as he looks at the Republican uh, group of candidates. The only one that, uh, honestly, a little editorializing here that would satisfy me would be Ron Paul, but clearly that's not somebody that's acceptable to uh, 
to people like Ben Bernanke, but Ron Paul has, is uh, incredibly popular with the military. In fact, he gets more donations than all the other Republican candidates together, uh, and more than Obama gets from the military. So it would seem to me that maybe the Fed chairman, who doesn't want to see his job eliminated, is out there pressing the flesh with the uh, uh, with the people that find Ron Paul most appealing. Anyway, I just uh, any thoughts, uh, closing thoughts on politics or otherwise before we conclude our conversation today, Adrian? Uh, well, I don't vote, of course. It only encourages the bastards. No, I don't vote because I'm not a U.S. citizen. But um, <laughs> sorry, but I think you're right about that. That was a quote from P.J. O'Rourke. Yes, but I know. Um, yeah. no, Ron, Ron Paul is doing remarkably well. What's interesting to me with Ron Paul is that in most of the poll. Most of the poll numbers you see, he comes yes. third. He yes. was third when, what's his name, Rick, uh, whatever his name is, from Texas was popular. Now right. Herman Cain has gone ahead. He's still third. Yes. But he's not being treated seriously as a candidate. No. Um, he's avoided. And, he's avoided, and, yeah. Yeah, it was one one poll I know. Uh, I saw it on the Internet. They, uh, not a poll, results, um, well, a straw poll, um, in which they said who was first and who was third. But they didn't say who was second. It happened yep. to be Ron Paul. So, yep. <laughs> you know, the the the, um, <clears throat> the straw poll in Florida had Michelle Bachman winning it. Ron Paul won the straw poll in California. It was never reported. So, something's going on here. I I sort of think um, he's a man that the establishment certainly doesn't want to see um, come into office. But whatever it is, uh, I want to thank you very much, Adrian, for spending your time with us again and giving us your thoughts. They are always. Uh, Always very valuable, so thanks again for being with us. Folks, don't go away. We're going to be right back after the break uh, with some thoughts uh, from Roger Wiegand and myself uh, with respect to today's markets. Don't go away. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to be talking to you this evening, wrapping up today's show from Zurich, Switzerland. I've really had a great time here. We actually rode the train up from uh, from Geneva earlier today and into town here into Zurich. <clears throat> had the pleasure of dining with Bob Hoy, who's been a, a guest on this show, as well as Brent Cook. Brent Cook is a geologist and, <clears throat> excuse me, one, I think one of the best geologists uh, around in terms of appraising gold mining stocks, and we were talking to Brent this evening about the possibility and the, the probability, actually, of having him on on a more regular basis on our show to help us find some, uh, to help us understand uh, what we need to look for when we're looking at gold mining companies. We have, I think, many great gold mining company sponsors on this show, um, <clears throat> Merrick's uh, Gold being one uh, that you might have heard the commercial for, but Merrick's Gold is here in Zurich uh, and in Geneva as well, they, where they presented their store to investors, to professional investors here. Uh, Merrick's is a company that I believe is on its way to uh, outlining a multi-million ounce gold resource in Mali, West Africa, and uh, with a very minuscule market cap. That's a company I think that could very well make uh, people five, ten times their money. There's never any guarantee in this business. But those kind of returns are not unusual. Uh, I continue to believe that we are in the bull market of a lifetime for gold mining companies, and the biggest reason I say that is because the real price of gold is rising. You know, forget the nominal price of gold. It doesn't matter what the price of gold is in terms of dollars. What is a dollar? 
as Ian McAvity has said, what is a dollar? A barrel of oil is a barrel of oil. An ounce of gold is an ounce of gold. But what's a dollar? Well, there's no definition to a dollar. The dollar used to be defined in terms uh, it's a gold content or it's silver content, but no more. It's basically anything that Mr. Bernanke wants to make it, and he can create trillions of dollars, and he is doing so, trillions of dollars out of thin air. So investors, smart investors around the world are saying enough already. We want to have something that's real. We want to have real money. We want to have gold. Uh, and, uh, and as Bob Hoy pointed out, and it was really a pleasure dining with Bob tonight here in Zurich, as Bob Hoy has pointed out in the past, it is the real price of gold that matters, and the real price of gold rises during these credit contractions. We are in the sixth largest, the sixth major credit contraction in the last 300 years. The previous ones were pound sterling, uh, pound sterling dominated uh, credit expansion contraction cycles. This is a U.S. dollar credit contraction uh, that is going on now, and with it, we can expect the real price of gold to continue to rise, to remain very high for some time. And I've been pointing out major gold mining companies are experiencing tremendous profits right now. They are really surging very, very dramatically. And this is very important to keep in mind when you think about these little junior mining companies. Rye Patch is another one I think is very, very undervalued. And there are many of them on our list uh, and companies that on my newsletter as well as sponsors to this show that I think are terrifically very, very undervalued and offer tremendous upside potential for investors. I should mention also that over dinner this evening we uh, had a discussion with Bob Hoy again. You know, most gold bugs really believe that the dollar is going to be is going to tank, that the dollar is going to go to zero. Its valuation will become zero and we're going to have hyperinflation. Well, Bob believes that that is not going to happen. In fact, that the dollar will remain one of the strongest paper currencies among all the all the currencies because uh, the dollar is the largest debt, the largest debtor currency. And when the system goes into reverse, the dollar then becomes the most sought after, most demanded currency of all. So uh, this is a, a, a sort of this is uh, the theory that I am subscribing to. One of the main reasons I think one of the biggest arguments for hyperinflation, if you see the dollar crashing. If the dollar really goes through a waterfall crash, and I'm really still looking at 71.38 on the dollar index, if we were to crash below that level, if we were to fall below that level, then I would start to become very concerned about the potentials for hyperinflation. But as long as it holds it, surprise people and remain strong. And this is one of the reasons that I am more on the deflation side than on the inflation side. Not people. James Turk, Congressman Paul, Doug Casey, a lot of people we've had on our show are really on the inflation side of this argument, a lot of very smart people on the other side, and it's hard to know for sure, but we are not Zimbabwe. The United States of America is not Zimbabwe. We can't inflate for uh, infinitely like uh, some of those kinds of countries can. Well, I know that we're just about out of time here today. Next week, we're going to have John Perkins on the show. John Perkins uh, has come out in favor of Occupy Wall Street. Am I in favor of Occupy Wall Street? Well, I'm in favor of people that recognize something is awfully wrong with the current system. Now, whether that means that we need to go out and what do we need to do? I mean, a proper diagnosis is always important. And what needs to be done, if you look at Rick, Rick Santelli or Ron Paul or some of those folks,
movements from the Tea Party movement. Definitely they understand free market economics. We need to get government out of the picture. And Bob Hoy, I would say, is one of the most optimistic people I have ever met in terms of believing that we are starting a bull market in common sense. And he sees the Tea Party and Occupy Wall Street as part of that movement. Let's hope that Bob is right. Next week, uh, John Perkins will be on to talk about the things he likes to talk about, about how uh, the major powers are really controlling uh, the, the markets. Um, that is the, the money behind the throne. The large corporate interests are really causing the U.S. to use its, its military power to exploit uh, other countries. I believe there's a lot of truth to that. Uh, but in any event, you're going, not going to want to miss uh, you're not going to want to miss John Perkins next week, uh, who has written a very interesting book called Confessions of an Economic Hitman, a book you should, uh, a book that you should read for sure. And I would throw in also along the same lines, a, a must read is um, uh, The Creature from Jekyll Island, which really explains who owns the system, who controls the American political system. Well, that's all for now. Uh, I want to thank uh, my, uh, I want to thank Casey Trump. Uh, and Justin Jackman, my engineer, Casey Trump, my producer, for making this show logistically possible. Thanks to each of you for listening to the show, making it the number one show on the Voice America business channel. Until next week, goodbye and God's blessings to you. Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Now the thing about time is that time isn't really real.